Hi there, welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Number one. If you can, please stand when you get that. Second Samuel 1. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag. On the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, Where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, The people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead, and Saul and Jonathan's son are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan's son are dead? And the young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered him, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? So I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. He said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son. For the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man, he told him, where are you from? And he answered, I'm the son of an alien, an Amalekite. Thank you, Lord, once again, just for your word. Help us to base our lives on its truths this morning. We ask in your name, amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Welcome to our new study through the book of 2 Samuel. Let's do a quick history lesson to sort of set the stage. No groaning or sleeping, please. The books we know as First and 2 Samuel tells the story of the first two kings of the nation of Israel. I'm, of course, speaking of King Saul and King David. Let us start with Israel's first king. We are told this in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the other nations. This is the beginning of all the troubles. Even though God had been their leader, they now want to be like everybody else, and so the compromising begins. When it comes to matters of absolute truth, there can be no compromise. 
I read a story about two men who had an argument. To settle the matter, they went to a judge for arbitration. First, the plaintiff made his case. He was very eloquent and persuasive in his reasoning. When he finished, the judge nodded in approval and said, You are right. On hearing this, the defendant jumped up and said, Wait a second, judge. You haven't even heard my side of the case yet. So the judge told the defendant to state his case. And he, too, was very persuasive and eloquent. When he finished, the judge said, on second thought, you are right. When the clerk heard this, he jumped up and said, judge, they both can't be right. The judge looked at the clerk and said, you know what, you're right also. Sometimes compromise simply won't work. While I was studying for this, my mind went back through our study in the book of Judges with a man by the name of Samson. If you know the story, you know that he kept getting closer and closer to telling Delilah the truth concerning the source of his strength. Until he finally uttered these regrettable words. This is Judges 16.16. And it came to pass when she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so much so that his soul was vexed to death. I ask you, what man has not been there? All husbands probably have that verse underlined in their Bibles. Not me, of course. That's what you call damage control on my part. Verse 17 says, Until finally he told her all his heart and said to her, No razor has ever come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite unto God from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak, and I will be like any other man. I will be like any other man. This is the danger of compromise. That there will be no difference between us and the unsaved. That the spirit-filled life is traded for the passing pleasures of temporary sin. And that our lives would have no ultimate purpose. Our prayer should be, O oh God, please don't let me become like any other man or woman. God never intended for Samson to be like any other man, nor does he for any of us also. Well, the same was true also for the nation of Israel. They say, make us a king. We want to be just like everyone else. So God gave them Saul, whose name literally means you asked for it. The sad thing is, just a short time before, if you remember, there was a stone set up and it was called Ebenezer, which means the Lord is our help. And the whole nation had rallied around that truth. But not long after that, all of that has been forgotten. Our memories of what God has done for us can be incredibly short sometimes. There is not the slightest indication that they wanted Samuel to determine God's will regarding the king. There is no reference at all to prayer on their part, and there is no evidence whatsoever of any type of humility. They wanted what they wanted, and they wanted it right now. That sounds thoroughly modern, doesn't it? As an aside, the real issue is they wanted to be like the world. And the first step in the direction is if we choose to forego 
our prayer life? What happens when we put confidence in our flesh? The answer is that we take the next step on down to our spiritual downgrade. We resolve ourselves to prayerlessness. The Israelites did not listen to the voice of God because they were not active in their prayer life. They had forgotten that God was the one who wanted to speak to them and lead them. Let us not make that same mistake this morning. Anyone who has read the book of 1 Samuel knows that the earlier book has told the story of Saul and his failure. But alongside that tragic account, there has been another story, the story of David. David was introduced in 1 Samuel 16 immediately after Saul's catastrophic act of disobedience in 1 Samuel chapter 15. The last five chapters of 1 Samuel interweave the two contrasting stories between David and Saul. And it's done so in a way that suggests that the events described in each narrative were happening at the same time. Now, David was only about 23 years old as we open up this chapter. And David is one of the most influential figures in all of history. This assessment and the reasons for it will emerge during our study of the account of his reign as we make our way through the book of 2 Samuel. In general terms, however, the claim can hardly be doubted. In cultures that have been touched by a story, David has captured the imagination of prominent artists, sculptors, and writers. And a large part of the reason for this is the remarkable account of his life and reign found in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. The story is absolutely, it's absolutely captivating. It's one of the world's finest pieces of narrative literature, as the greatness and the weakness of this man's life are portrayed in vivid and gripping detail. At the end of 1 Samuel, we saw Saul and his army fighting a losing battle against the Philistines on Mount Gilboa. Saul's soldiers were falling left and right, even his sons died near him. And finally, an arrow from a Philistine soldier pierced his own body. And as his life was draining away from him, he ordered the armor bearer to kill him, lest the Philistines would come upon him and torture him. And when his armor bearer refused, Saul fell on his own sword and died on Mount Gilboa. Or did he? Here in 2 Samuel 1, I think we're given some additional information regarding this account. Look at verse 1 with me, please. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag. The book of 2 Samuel opens with the implied question, what will happen after the death of Saul. If Saul cannot secure Israel's life, then what hope was there? A thousand years later, there was another death that appeared to have similarities to the death of Saul. Like Saul, the Lord Jesus had been known as the Anointed One. But in the eyes of the world, when Christ died, his death seemed to be an abysmal failure. It was the sentiment of the two heartbroken disciples upon Emmaus Road who said, we had hoped that he would have been the one to redeem Israel. But Saul truly died of failure. It's not difficult to imagine an Israelite in those days lamenting of Saul. We had hoped he would have been the one to redeem Israel. 
Therefore, if the book of 2 Samuel is going to answer the question, what will happen after the death of Saul? The first hint is that, one, the death of Saul was not the only thing that was happening on that dreadful day. There was a victory being won, even if it was unnoticed by most. And two, the victory was being won by David, the one who had been chosen by God to be a better king than Saul. And finally, the victory was in fact reversing Saul's momentous failure. A thousand years later, when Jesus died, the truth, the truth of that day was, once again, one, a victory was won, even if it was unnoticed by most. Two, the victory was won by the one chosen by God, David's greater son, the Lord Jesus. And three, his victory was in fact reversing humanity's historic failure at the fall. We know from 1 Samuel that the Lord prevented David and his men from assisting the Philistines in their battle against Saul and Israel. And so David now returns to Ziklag. There he discovered that the Amalekites had invaded taking over all the people and goods and had left the town in complete ruins. So God in his providence leads David to the Amalekite camp. And then David routed the enemy, delivered the women and children, and reclaimed all the people as well as the loot the Amalekites had accumulated in their raids. He then returned to Ziklag and awaited news from the battlefield. Look at verse 2. On the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, Where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. We are told in verse 1 that David waits two days, but on the third day, now you see the insertion of his kingdom. Do you guys remember another Jewish king who on the third day also arose and entered into his kingdom? I love the continuity of how the Bible flows in its grand design. The appearance of the man who arrived, though, was indeed ominous. His clothes were torn and there was dirt on his head. This signaled bad news as these were conventional expressions of mourning during that time. Listen. If I ever knock on your door with my clothes ripped and dirt on my head, I'm either bringing you bad news or I've had a terrible fall on my mail route. And speaking of mail route, this guy has completed a journey of 90 miles in just three days to bring them this news. If my math is correct, that means he's covered an average of 30 miles every day. I'm just glad he wasn't a mailman or I'd be out of a job. Verse 4, please. Then David said to him, how did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, the people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? One of the key words in this chapter is the word fallen. It's found in verses 4, 10, 12, 19, and 27. What I find interesting about that is that when Saul began his royal career, he was described as standing head and shoulders taller than any of the other people, but he ends his career as a fallen king. Think about it. He fell on his face in the house of the witch of Endor until he finally fell on his face. In the, under the battlefield of the enemy. 
In verse 5, David presses this messenger for more information. Now, David was no fool. Perhaps there was an incongruity between the expressions of mourning and the way he conveyed the news of the Israelite deaths. Did he sound as if he thought he was bringing good news instead of bad news? Whatever the reason, David's third question pressed the young man to make sure he was telling the truth. Verse 6, please. And the young man who said, who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul, leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Okay. So now the question arises. Did Saul die at his own hand, or was he helped along by this Amalekite? There are great Bible scholars on each side of this question. In my opinion, it would seem to me that Saul had attempted suicide, but was unsuccessful. And the main reasons I think that is this. For one, David obviously believes him. But not only that. If I were to come up with a story to impress David concerning Saul, I would paint myself in a more courageous and heroic light. I wouldn't portray myself as someone who just came up on a guy almost dead, and so I finished him off. If it were me, and I was going to lie, I would regale David with a story of how I fought Saul to the death in a sword fight, even though the only thing I had to fight with was a cucumber. Plus, he really had no reason to lie concerning these events. I'll wait. Go ahead. It's not funny if I have to explain it. So if his report is true, as I believe, there's a fascinating caveat to this since the man was an Amalekite. Please don't miss the impact of these words. I am an Amalekite. Now, why would I bring that up? You see, God had declared a death sentence over the Amalekite race because of their evil deeds. Now, you may think that sounds harsh, but God knows the future, and we don't. Twenty-five years earlier, God had commanded Saul to wipe out the entire race of the Amalekites. I realize that sounds harsh to our ears this morning, but the example I always use is that of a rabid dog. If we looked out the window at the playground and saw a rabid dog foaming at the mouth and snarling at the children, what should we do? I know some of you are packing heat this morning, and so the correct thing to do would be shoot the dog. Why? Because despite what National Geographic may tell you, children are more important than animals. And not only that, it would be a mercy to the dog because it's suffering and it's not going to get any better. God knew this exact same thing about the entire race of the Amalekites. Their sin had reached the point to where they were now just rabid and just needed to be put down. Also, it's important to remember that God had given them 400 years to repent. That's more than enough time. In fact, that is extremely generous. 
Now please listen closely. If you go just a few years into the future into the book of Esther, you meet a guy named Haman who came up with a plan to exterminate every Jew upon the earth. He was the Old Testament version of Adolf Hitler. Guess what race he was? He was an Amalekite. Disobedience always has a way of coming back to bite us right in the ankle. You were worried there for a second, weren't you? I wish you could see your faces. <sighs> but the previous night, Saul had been told the terrible reason he had lost the kingdom and that he would die the next day in his battle with the Philistines. God plainly tells Saul, it was because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out my fierce wrath against the Amalekites. The Amalekites had been at the center of Saul's downfall. Saul's decisive act of disobedience had been his failure to do what God had told him to do concerning the Amalekite race. The full account is in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Twenty-five years earlier, God said to Saul, I want you to kill every Amalekite. Once again, why? The Amalekites were a constant problem to the people of Israel. If you've ever read it, as the Israelites made their way to the promised land, the Amalekites would attack the back of the pack where the older people, along with the women and children, and the sick and the feeble would walk. Therefore, because they showed no mercy, God declared to Moses that he would war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. In 1 Samuel, God reiterated his charge against the Amalekites when he told Saul once again to destroy them. And to his credit, Saul dutifully led the Israelite army in war against the Amalekites. But when the battle was over, he said to Samuel these words, Blessed be the Lord, we have obeyed what the Lord has told us to do. We have been victorious over the Amalekites. But in actuality, they hadn't destroyed all of the Amalekites. They were supposed to kill everything, even the livestock. So Samuel asked, if that's true, says Samuel, what is this bleeding of sheep that I hear in my ear? Oh, said Saul, we saved a few of the sheep to offer for sacrifice to the Lord. Well, who's that, says Samuel, pointing to a man? Him? Oh, that's just Agag, the king of Amalek. We brought him back as a trophy. We see here that Saul disobeyed and brought back the king of Amalek along with the booty. Now, booty is the Old Testament word for spoils of war. I don't want the only thing you get from today's sermon is that the pastor said the word booty. I know my audience. Samuel then said to Saul, because you have not obeyed the Lord, the kingdom has been taken from you. You have lost your authority, your opportunity, and your ministry. You are supposed to kill every Amalekite. But because you compromised, because you did things your way, you're now going to regret it. Now, as far as we know, at least one Amalekite was left alive. What does that mean to us this morning? I suggest it means to us that somewhere along the line, Agag reproduced himself. And that's how sin is, by the way. 
Left to itself, it will grow like a malignant tumor, completely destroying our lives and our joy. That's why so often compared to leprosy. Now, don't miss this. At the end of Saul's life, as he lays there with his life's blood slowly ebbing away, who finally ends his life? Ironically, it was an Amalekite. Why would I make such a big issue concerning that fact? For one reason, there's a very powerful and warring line underneath that. When it comes to sin, we must do all we can to completely eradicate it from our lives. Because those things, those Amalekites that we allow to live, have the capability to one day destroy us. I would caution us all to be completely merciless with any lingering Amalekites that we may have allowed to live in our lives. If you take notes, I would include the following statement. You've heard me say it before, and it is this. We must always be ruthless in our dealing with sin, because sin will always be ruthless in its dealing with us. Let's not deceive ourselves concerning that. The following was written by an old Puritan named Thomas Watson about the nature of self-deception. He writes, He who takes copper instead of gold wrongs himself. The most counterfeit saint deceives others while he lives, but deceives himself when he dies. To pretend to holiness when there is none is a vain thing. What comfort will just a show of holiness yield at last? Will painted gold enrich? Will painted wine refresh him who is thirsty? Or painted holiness be at the hour of death? A pretense of sanctification is not to be rested in. Watson then finishes with what I think are chilling words. Many ships have been cast away upon the rocks. So too, many who have had the name saints have been cast into hell. Saul compromised, and 25 years later, the compromise shows up and kills him. Maybe this morning you're in a situation of compromising. You may be thinking, I'm doing a pretty good job in dealing with sin, but there are one or two areas in my life that I know the Lord is dealing with me to remove. Just know, the wages of sin is still death, and the way of the transgressor is still hard. And so all those little acts of disobedience, will come back one day to haunt us. The disobedience of Saul came back to haunt him once again, 25 years later. God will not be mocked. We will reap whatever we sow. May the Holy Spirit drive that truth into our hearts right now. Look at verse 9. He said to me, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. The Bible makes it clear that the man said that King Saul commanded him to stand over him and not beside him. Now why would I bring that up? If you were going to kill someone with a spear, where would be the best place to stand? 
It would be directly over them, wouldn't it? And there the irony lies, for once again, this was an Amalekite. Now, who was meant to stand over the Amalekites and remove those enemies from Israel? It was King Saul. Now, where is Saul? He is underneath the feet of an Amalekite who stands on him instead. And now his death, his sin is revisiting him as he lingers between life and death. Actually, that's how the great commentator Matthew Henry says that Saul lived. Between life and death, between God and evil, and now he dies the same way that he lived. What an irony it must have been for Saul in the last moments of his life to be face to face with an Amalekite. Verse 11. Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? He said, I'm the son of an alien, an Amalekite. Now, don't think Area 51 or National Enquirer alien. This just means he was a foreigner to Israel. The Amalekite messenger must have been shocked and afraid when he saw David and his men tearing their garments and mourning the death of Saul. He thought that everybody in Ziklag would rejoice to hear the news of Saul's death, knowing that this would mean the end of their dangerous, fugitive way of life. He probably expected to be rewarded for bringing such good news. But he obviously didn't know the tender heart of David. In David's eyes, Saul was never his enemy. And on the two occasions when David might have slain Saul, he made it clear he would never lay hands on the Lord's anointed. David may well have understood that Saul's death was God's doing, as indeed it was. However, that did not diminish the tragedy any more than the coming divine judgment on Jerusalem many years later would diminish the sorrow that Jesus felt over that city. So in closing, let me ask you, how do you treat your enemies? How do you think about those who consider you to be an enemy? Given the opportunity, would you strike out at your enemy or would you defend them at all costs? David's treatment of Saul, which we will see next week, will give us a foretaste of the teaching that Jesus would offer many years later on the Sermon on the Mount where he said, You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And that is what we will be looking at next Sunday. And Lord, that may be one of the hardest truths that we have to love our enemies. And so, Lord, we pray that the things that we have learned today, that you would build them into our lives. That it just wouldn't be more Bible facts that we memorize, but they would be the impetus, Lord, to cause us to want to change and walk more holy and just before you. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.